Welcome to Hanchuk Targets History. I'm your host, Tim Hanchuk. Thanks for joining me this episode. You know, I've been teaching high school history for way too many years, and I love talking about this stuff. So let me share with you some interesting, unique, and little-known historical events. I know you'll be entertained, and if you're not careful, you just might learn something too. So, let's lock and load and take a shot at that target of history and see what we can hit. Let's take a walk down range and see what the target shows us. Well, it looks like today we hit on the Battle of Bannockburn, a two-day slugfest pitting the army of Robert the Bruce, King of the Scots, against the army of King Edward II of England. It was fought on June 23rd and 24th, 1314, and is one of Scotland's most celebrated victories. Let's see what happened. We'll start with some background info that takes us back to the 1280s, when relations between England and Scotland were relatively good. At the time, Scotland was ruled by King Alexander III, while Edward I, nicknamed Edward Longshanks, sat on the throne of England. Later on, he would pick up another nickname, the Hammer of the Scots, so you can tell where this is going. But anyway, Alexander had actually paid homage to Edward, who happened to be his brother-in-law, but only for the lands he held in England. Okay, so far so good. However, in 1286, Alexander III died. His heir to the throne of Scotland, and his only surviving descendant, was his three-year-old granddaughter, Margaret. Negotiations took place, and an agreement was reached in the Treaty of Burgham. Margaret would marry Edward I's son, Edward of Carnarvon, who happened to be six at the time. By the way, he is going to pop up again in our story in just a few minutes. By the time this treaty was concluded, Margaret was seven, and Eddie was ten. In the fall of 1290, Margaret, who had been living in Norway, set sail for Scotland. Unfortunately, she became ill on the voyage and died. Ooh, that's not good. With her death, there was no obvious heir to the throne of Scotland, which led to a succession dispute known as the Great Cause. Let me try to explain this fairly quickly. There was something like 14 different guys who made a claim on the Scottish throne with the two most likely being John Balliol and Robert the Bruce, 5th Lord of Annandale. The Scottish magistrates asked Edward to conduct the proceedings and administer the outcome, but not to actually arbitrate in the dispute. Now, at Burgham, Edward had been easygoing due to the fact that he was setting up a union between the two realms, namely his son and the previous Scottish king's granddaughter. But because that had fallen through, the question of suzerainty became important to him. Suzerainty is a fancy word that I struggle to say, basically meaning the right of a country to rule over another country. In this case, Edward insisted that if he were to settle the contest, he had to be fully recognized as Scotland's feudal overlord. Needless to say, the Scots weren't too thrilled with this. They danced around Edward's demand by replying that because the country had no king, there was no one with the authority to make such a decision. The problem was ultimately circumvented when the competitors, John and Robert, agreed that the realm would be turned over to Edward until a rightful king had been chosen. After a great deal of debate, the auditors making the decision 
finally went with John Balliol in November of 1292. Even with Balliol on the throne, Edward still wouldn't back off and continued to assert his authority over Scotland. Over the next four years, there were numerous English provocations that increasingly angered the Scots. The final straw came in 1296, when Edward demanded that the Scottish magnates provide troops for his war against France. Instead, the Scots made an alliance with France and launched an unsuccessful attack on Carlisle. Edward responded by invading Scotland, thus beginning the first war of Scottish independence. By the end of the year, Edward had captured the town of Berwick, won the Battle of Dunbar, which effectively crushed Scottish resistance, and deposed John Balliol, who would end up being imprisoned in the Tower of London. He also nabbed the Stone of Scone, the Scottish Coronation Stone, also known as the Stone of Destiny, and brought it back to Westminster, placing it into what became known as King Edward's Chair. It has been used ever since for the coronations of the monarchs of England, Great Britain, and the United Kingdom. By the way, the British government returned it to Scotland in 1996, where it resides unless it's being used for a coronation. Huh. You know, like the one we had earlier this year. Anyway, Edward also installed Englishmen to govern the country. So all in all, Edward's campaign certainly was successful, but little did he know that his victory would be short-lived. Scottish resistance to English rule would soon begin, finding leadership from Andrew de Moray in the north and William Wallace in the south. Yeah, a guy from the movie Braveheart. In September of 1297, de Moray and Wallace pounded a much larger English force at the famous Battle of Stirling Bridge. Edward launched a retaliatory campaign and defeated Wallace's forces at the Battle of Falkirk in July of 1298. However, he was unable to follow up on the momentum of this victory, as the Scots were able to recapture Stirling Castle in 1299. By the time 1301 rolled around, the Scots had shifted their strategy, refusing to engage in any major set-piece battles. Instead, they used hit-and-run guerrilla tactics and sent raids into the English countryside. But by 1304, the English again seemed to have the upper hand, having retaken Stirling Castle and having received the allegiance of many of the Scottish nobles. The following year, 1305, William Wallace was betrayed and captured by the English. Uh, he was, of course, executed. Again, Scotland was largely under English control, with Edward bringing back Englishmen and collaborating Scots to govern the country. But this would change once again. In February of 1306, Robert the Bruce, the grandson of the Robert the Bruce who had made a claim on the throne in 1291 during the Great Cause, murdered John Comyn, his chief rival to the Scottish throne. A few weeks later, on March 25th, Robert the Bruce was crowned King of Scotland. He then set out on a campaign to restore Scottish independence. In 1307, Edward I died to be succeeded by his son, Edward II. Hey, we mentioned him earlier. Edward II was not capable of providing the determined leadership his father had shown. He was a weak ruler and quarreled with his barons. As the years progressed, morale in the English side declined, making their position in Scotland all the more difficult. 
By 1314, only two major fortresses remained under English control, Berwick on the border and Stirling Castle, which was a highly strategic stronghold because it commanded the route north into the Scottish Highlands. Edward Bruce, Robert's younger brother, had been laying siege to Stirling Castle since February of 1313. That June, negotiations between the two sides came to an agreement that if an English force had not relieved the siege by midsummer, June 24, 1314, the occupiers would surrender to the Scots. The prospect of losing control of Stirling Castle was something that Edward II could not ignore, so he prepared a sizable force to go break the siege. At the end of 1313, he issued the summonses for his army to assemble, demanding 2,000 heavily armored cavalry and 25,000 infantrymen. Now remember, Edward had not been getting along too well with his nobles, and a number of them flat out refused to answer his call to arms. Among them were the Earl of Lancaster, the Earl of Warwick, the Earl of Warren, and the Earl of Arundale. Consequently, way less men than Edward had wanted actually assembled in Berwick in May of 1314. While accounts vary as to the exact numbers, estimates say that perhaps there were 1,500 heavy cavalry. These would be both knights and men-at-arms. The knights would be wearing chain mail along with plate armor and carried a shield, long lance, sword and dagger. They might also have a battle axe or mace handy as well. Their coat of arms were on their shield, surcoat, and horse trappings. And speaking of horses, they rode a destrier, a large, heavy war horse, strong enough to carry an armed knight at full speed. Men-at-arms, who were socially lower than knights, wore less armor and carried a somewhat shorter lance, but also had a shield, sword, dagger, and mace or battleaxe. Their horses tended to be lighter, and they, of course, did not have coats of arms to display on their shields. As for the English infantry, estimates put their number at around 13,000. They would be armed with whatever was available to them. Spears, billhooks, swords, battle axes, maces, or any other handy implement. They might wear metal helmets and quilted garments for protection, if they could get them. It is known that there was also a sizable detachment of Welsh archers, armed with the mighty English longbow. As for the Scottish army, estimates put their number at around 6,000, with about 500 being cavalry troops. The Scottish infantry was armed much like the English, though the majority most likely had spears or pikes. They also had relatively few bowmen. As for the Scottish cavalry, recall that Robert the Bruce had been fighting a guerrilla campaign during the past years, and thus, most of the mounted men, who were knights and men-at-arms, were less armored and rode smaller horses, suitable more for skirmishing and reconnaissance. Okay, so Edward and his force began their advance into Scotland on June 17th. If you've been keeping track of things, you'll see that that left him only one week to relieve the siege at Stirling Castle by June 24th. Let's face it, he launched his invasion too late. To try to make up for this, he continually hurried his troops along, covering 70 miles in six days, including 20 
on Saturday, June 22nd. When they arrived at Falkirk that evening, his forces were tired and hungry. That still left them about eight miles from Sterling, a distance they'd need to cover the next morning before the battle. Again, pretty poor planning on his part. At sunrise on the morning of Sunday, June 23, 1314, Father Maurice, the blind abbot of Inchifray, celebrated Mass for the Scottish army, after which Robert the Bruce began to position his troops to meet the English. Robert chose a flat field, flanked by a woodland known as New Park. These woods gave his infantry ample cover. His force faced the fords over the Bannockburn, the stream that the English would have to cross. On top of this, the Scots also dug concealed pits in front of them along the bank of the Bannockburn to further thwart English cavalry charges. Robert divided his force into four battalions called Shiltrons and arranged them in sort of a diamond configuration. Robert himself commanded the Shiltron to the south. Thomas Randolph, the Earl of Moray, and King Robert's nephew, had his Shiltron positioned northward in the direction of Stirling, which was kind of on the opposite side of the New Park Woods. Sir James Douglas had his to the east, and Edward Bruce, Robert's brother, was positioned to the west, along with the Scottish cavalry under the command of Sir Robert Keith. With the stage set, let's talk about the first day of battle on June 23rd. But by the way, most medieval battles were relatively quick affairs, lasting only a few hours. The fact that Bannockburn went for two days makes it kind of unusual. But anyway, the battle opened with two English cavalry formations advancing. The first was led by the Earl of Gloucester and the Earl of Hereford. Following them was a slightly smaller detachment under Sir Robert Clifford and Sir Henry de Beaumont. Their objective was to press on to Stirling Castle and break the siege. The Gloucester-Hereford group was the first across the Bannockburn and began to make their way toward the woods where, unbeknownst to them, the Scottish army lay in wait. While this was going on, Robert the Bruce decided to get a first-hand look at the advancing English. Because he was just conducting reconnaissance, he was astride a small horse and was lightly armored with only a battle axe for a weapon. An English knight, Henry de Bone, who was Hereford's nephew, recognized King Robert and the fact that he was in an exposed position and poorly armed. Perhaps looking for an opportunity to seize the day, Bowen lowered his lance and charged his warhorse. Bruce saw the coming charge and stood his ground. At the very last second, Bruce twisted his mount to avoid Bowen's lance and at the same time stood tall in his stirrups and delivered an overhand chop with his battle axe that cleaved Bowen's helmet and killed him instantly. The Scots then rushed the English forces, who were forced to retreat back across the Bannockburn. Meanwhile, the Clifford Beaumont force was moving a bit more to the north, heading right into where the Earl of Moray had his Shiltron position. He had gotten word that his uncle had just repulsed an English formation on the other side of the woods, and decided he wanted to get some for himself as well. He advanced his troops, who were mainly armed with pikes, to meet the English. Though the English charged, the Scottish pikemen utterly routed them, forcing their retreat. 
Some tried to flee to the safety of Stirling Castle, while the rest went back to the English lines, which were south of the Bannockburn. During that night, the English forces crossed back over the Bannockburn and took up positions on the field beyond it. A Scottish knight named Alexander Seton, who had been fighting in the service of Edward II, deserted the English and made his way to the Scottish camp. He told Bruce that the English morale was extremely low and encouraged him to attack as soon as possible the following morning. That brings us to day two of the battle, Monday, June 24th. At daybreak, the Scottish forces emerged from the woods of the new park and advanced on the English position. But as they drew nearer, the Scottish soldiers suddenly stopped and knelt in prayer. Edward was rather surprised by this. The story goes that he supposedly jeered, they pray for mercy, to which an attendant was to have replied, for mercy, yes, but from God, not from you. These men will conquer or die. (laughs) I think English teachers would call that a bit of foreshadowing. Earlier that morning, Gloucester and Hereford had been arguing with each other as to who would get to lead the vanguard into battle. On top of this, once the Scots started advancing, Gloucester had tried to persuade Edward that maybe they should withdraw and postpone the battle. Edward accused him of cowardice for saying such a thing. Goaded by this accusation, Gloucester charged out to meet the Scots. Few knights accompanied him, and when he reached the Scottish lines, he was quickly surrounded and killed. So, you know, that didn't go too well for him. And then the battle was on. The pikemen of the Scottish Shiltrons ground down the English and began to gradually push them back. Edward tried to use his archers to support his knights, but they soon had to stop shooting because they were hitting their own men. Edward then attempted to move his archers to flank the advancing Scots, but Sir Robert Keith and the Scottish cavalry moved in and dispersed them. As the English cavalry was pushed back, it found itself with its back to the Bannockburn. That, along with the pits the Scots had dug before the battle, severely hampered their maneuverability. Unable to hold their formations, and with mounting losses, the English cavalry broke ranks and ran. Clearly the battle was lost, so Edward's personal bodyguards removed him from the field, lest he be captured. With their king gone, panic set in, and the English defeat turned into a rout. Edward, with about 500 men, first went to Stirling Castle, but Sir Philip de Mowbray, commander of the castle, sent him away. He knew the castle would soon be in Scottish hands, so it definitely was not a safe refuge for the king. With Scottish pursuit hot on his heels, Edward instead went to Dunbar Castle, and from there hopped onto a ship and sailed to Berwick. As for the rest of the English army, well, they had about 90 miles of hostile territory to cover before reaching the English border. Many were killed by the pursuing Scottish army or the inhabitants of the Scottish countryside. Estimates say that perhaps as high as 70% of the English infantry were killed during the battle and subsequent retreat, with a further 700 knights and men-at-arms dead as well. Records indicate that about 500 knights and men-at-arms were captured and held for ransom. On the Scottish side, casualties seem to have been relatively light, numbering perhaps around 500. 
So all in all, a decisive Scottish victory. But what's it all mean? What were the consequences of this great win? Well, the immediate consequence was the English surrendering Stirling Castle. To ensure it was never retaken again, King Robert completely tore it down. Shortly after this, the English also surrendered Bothwell Castle, where a number of the English nobles had taken refuge after the battle, including the Earl of Hereford. The Scottish also captured the English strongholds of Dunbar and Judburg. This meant that by 1315, only Berwick remained outside Scottish control. Remember how I had mentioned that a number of English nobles were captured and held for ransom? Well, in exchange for them, Edward released Robert's wife Elizabeth, his sisters Christina and Mary, and his daughter Marjorie, along with Robert Wishart, the Bishop of Glasgow. All of them had been held captive in England for the previous eight years. On a side note, in 2016, the Swedish metal band Sabaton released their album called The Last Stand. One of the tracks is the song Blood of Bannockburn. I've seen Sabaton live. They put on an awesome show. I mean, let's face it. Heavy metal songs about historical events? What could be better? But anyway, in 1328, the Treaty of Edinburgh-Northampton was signed between Scotland and England. In exchange for the payment of £20,000 sterling, England would recognize Scotland as fully independent and recognize Robert the Bruce and his heirs and successors as the rightful rulers of Scotland. Now you're saying, wait a second, how do we jump ahead more than a dozen years? During the time between the victory at Bannockburn and the treaty in 1328, there was a lot going on, including Scottish raids into northern England, an invasion of Ireland, and a declaration sent to the Pope, among other things. But talking about all that, well, that would be another story. And there you have it, kind listeners. Thank you for tuning in. You know, if you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends and check out some of my other episodes. And I very much look forward to talking with you again, hopefully sooner rather than later.